Expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Gavin. Hello. Also in studio with us today is Nathan Bado of the Institute of Political Science at Academia Sinica. Nathan, thanks for being in here today. It's nice to be here. And uh, we definitely need you today. A crazy amount of politics to get through. Not very much science, but maybe you can bring the science into it uh, if we're feeling good about it. Uh, today on the show, we're going to be talking about Ma's presidency, which marked its seventh year this week. The KMT presidential primary, which is shaping up by not shaping up too much at all. A possible invitation for Taiwan to participate in a massive U.S.-led maritime drill for the first time and charges of discrimination against immigrants in Taiwan's education guidelines. Now, astute listeners may notice that we are not fitting in the news topping all the papers today. That is, uh, that construction on the Taipei Dome, well, uh, the Taipei city government has succeeded in halting it, although uh, Far Glory Group is fighting it, and they're trying to resume that construction as we speak. So we're going to have to see uh, how all of that shakes out. Uh, We're not going to be talking about it on the show today because, well, you know, we're waiting to see how it shakes out, and I'm sure there's going to be a a lot more to talk about next week. But uh, if you know, if you haven't heard about this, crack open a paper. Lots of juicy bits of the back and forth between Mayor Ke and Far Glory. Plenty to read there. Uh, But uh, since there's no Taipei Dome, instead, as promised... It's politics galore this week. Uh, this week marked President Ma Ying-jeou's seventh year in office, and he marked that with a series of speeches and press events. Now, it's a widely known fact that President Ma's approval rating have seen better days, and there's actually a few polls that illustrate that fact that uh, we can get into in a moment. Uh, but rather than being cowed by the numbers, uh, this week Ma stood firm on the record he set in his first seven years, It also signaled uh, that he has no intention of sitting on the sidelines during his eighth year, his final year in office. Uh, So I want to ask both of you, uh, what stood out from what he said this week? What did did you notice? Well, it was a very defiant speech. Uh, Ma stood up and proudly defended his record in office. Uh, That was his speech this Wednesday. Uh, Yeah, the main main speech. Um, And uh, he, he... presented a very uh, Potemkin village type of view of his first seven years, uh, surrounding himself with friendly faces and telling flattering stories about his record. Uh, he studiously avoided mentioning many of the more controversial topics uh, that have dominated news in the last seven years. Uh, so he didn't. He never said anything about nuclear power, food safety, uh, the Sunflower Movement or other student protests, the attempt to purge Speaker Wong, or the the lessons or implications of last year's uh, election debacle. So he, uh, he, he presented a very uh, rosy picture of, of, of politics, of his record in office. Uh, and he said that uh, his any pop- unpopularity that's come out of this is due mostly to him having to take tough and necessary but unpopular 
decisions. So, for example, he he cited the uh, decision to reform the pricing formula for electricity and uh, gas in order to ensure the financial stability of Thai Power and China Petroleum, uh, as if the reason that people are unhappy with energy policy is because we're afraid that Thai Power and China Petroleum might go bankrupt and not uh, that they don't seem to have a long-term vision for uh, future energy uh, policy or environmental protection or alternative energy development. So, right. So, uh, kind of a, a rosy picture painted this week. Is that what you saw, Gavin? I liked his way that he said he didn't regret any of these decisions. While I like, he, he, he did say that he would take responsibility take, for the controversy. He said he would take responsibility for any controversy, but then he didn't talk about the controversial topics. Mm. And then he also didn't, he said, I have no regret about passing any laws or my policies without touching on any controversial right. topics that he did manage to get involved with. Right. And and he also said that future leaders uh, are going to need to stand on his policies and kind of continue them. Was, uh, did you see that as a as a significant statement, Nathan? Yeah, I, I thought that was the single most important statement of the of his uh, of his speeches. Uh, he he said at one point, "We have set out a foundation." Something to the effect of, "We have set out a foundation for the path of Taiwan," and no matter who governs they will have to continue this path. Uh, and I think that's a very, that, that's laying down the gauntlet uh, for the DPP in particular. Uh, tsai Ing-wen has said that she wants to maintain the status quo. And Ma ying is effectively challenging her saying, well, I set out the status quo. Yes, of course you have to mm. maintain it. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful achievement and it's the only reasonable path. And, and by the way, if you're going to maintain the status quo, aren't you, aren't you effectively admitting that it's, that my policies were correct? The 92 consensus and ECFA and engagement with China are, are the correct and only viable path. Mm. Um, so, so, so by establishing, you know, his, the, the the last seven years as the status quo, he's kind of set up a bit of a rhetorical trap for her. Yeah, I think we're going to hear this theme a lot over the next eight months. I think this is going to be one of the things that Mainjo comes back to again and again uh, in trying to defend his record and and say that he's had a successful presidency. Yeah, of course, Tsai, Tsai did come back at Ma in response to his address, but of course she didn't actually say anything, she didn't actually criticise or have a go at the address, did she? She simply said, I think it's time for a change in government. Yeah, yeah, she she brushed the whole thing off and said, uh, Ma Joe's become too distant from the people and his policy makers make closed-door decisions and it's time for a change without actually saying if she agreed with it or disagreed with it. No, and that's how she's going to deal, probably, I, I assume, that's how she's going to deal with his rhetorical trap, is to just brush by it. And and so would uh, would you say that he's also sending a signal to the KMT as well? So I think this, this statement that no matter who governs, they're going to have to follow his line is also laying out a clear challenge to, or maybe not a challenge, an order to the rest of his party. Uh, it's telling the rest of the KMT that you're not going to be distancing yourself from my policies. Uh, the policies that you've set down, anybody who represents the party is going to follow the 92 consensus and engagement with China and uh, the, the basic economic strategy that he's laid out. And, and thus far, to be, to be honest, nobody seems to have had the will or the guts 
to to really try to distance themselves from President Ma on any of the core issues. So this perhaps is a sign that the Ma presidency may be wrapping up, but the Ma KMT is going to have some staying power. I, I think that is what Ma would like very much to happen. Uh, now, okay, so this is the KMT that he would like to see projected into the future. His polling numbers aren't looking particularly great. I'm not, you know, I, you're a political scientist, so I'm sure that you have your preferred polling to look at. Uh, this week I was looking at Taiwan think tank's numbers that showed that about 68% of respondents were dissatisfied with Ma, compared with 21% who were satisfied. Uh, so, you know, not a very strong approval rating. Is he standing strong in his record and saying that he's not going to be a lame duck president? That's one thing. But uh, does he really have the clout to follow through on this in his last year? Well, that's uh, a big question, and I, I doubt he does. In in his main speech, he gave a 30-minute speech, and the first 25 minutes were the rosy vision of the last seven years. And he only got around to talking about what he wants to do in his last year in the last five minutes of the speech. His big idea, the, the one that everybody's paying attention to, is that he said he wants to pass the cross-strait agreements, oversight of framework, and, quote, agreements that have already been signed, unquote. And by that, he means the the services of trade agreement. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's so unpopular that apparently he didn't even want to mention that by name. Mm. Um, but he hasn't publicly given up on passing the services trade agreement. That is the single most important goal for his his entire second term. The, the, the major achievement of his first term was passing ECFA. The service trade agreement would have been the complement to that in the, in the second term. And he doesn't want to be viewed as a lame duck who can't get that signature bill passed or a, not a bill, an, an agreement passed. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's becoming increasing. The, the calendar is becoming increasingly difficult for him. He has to pass the oversight framework agreement first. And uh, the TSU is boycotting that uh, pretty effectively. And for the, that to for the the services trade agreement to pass it probably has to be done this session which will go into recess in July if he tries to wait until the next session which is, opens in uh, September it will probably be it will be in the the heat of the electoral campaign and it's almost impossible to pass anything substantive then so of course the the oversight bill of course this is not singular this is like multi-plural, because the KMT and the Cabinet have obviously proposed their oversight bills, the DPP have proposed oversight bills, the TSU have proposed oversight bills, and various other civic groups have also proposed their own cross-China trade agreement oversight bills. So there's obviously a plethora, a multitude of these bills that are waiting to be read. Yes, and they, they have very different visions of the power relation between the executive and the legislative branch. Uh, the the executive UN bill uh, has more oversight in the title of the bill than in the actual content of the bill. Uh, their vision of how negotiations should, uh, how agreements should be negotiated uh, is basically that the executive should take full responsibility and every once in a while report on what it's already done to the legislature and the legislature should listen. Uh, the DPP, as I understand, basically agrees that the process should be led by the executive. However, they do want more of a role for the legislature to be involved during the process of negotiations to be able to put in uh, their input 
uh, and and say we'd rather you soften this provision or change that or what have you. Uh, maybe through back channels, maybe informally, but they want the legislature to be involved in the process a bit more than the the, the executive yuan does right now. Uh, and then you have the, the the bill from the Sunflower Movement. It's uh, sponsored by DPP party list legislator Yo Meini, but it's written by uh, Lai Zhongqiang, who's a lawyer associated with the Sunflower Movement. Uh, and that bill is a completely different vision. It's a completely different. It's a complete. It's a it's a process led entirely by the legislature, with almost where the legislature can stop things or change things at almost every stage, and and it would be very difficult to ever get anything through. So these bills are very very different visions of right. how negotiations should proceed. Well, with that wide a divergence in vision uh, to look at. It does seem like it's going to be a little bit tough to get consensus on that in the window of opportunity that is remaining, that being Ma's remaining year. And of course, uh, a seven-year anniversary of Ma means we're exactly one year away from seeing someone new take the office. So what about that presidential election? Well, the deadline for KMT primary registration came and went, and... None of the KMT heavyweights thought to have the best chance of defeating the DPP's candidate, Tsai Ing-wen, stepped forward. A few people did show up with their registration forms in hand, along with the many, many thousands of signatures needed to make it into the primary, not to mention the requisite 7 million NT processing fee. Actually, two of them, I should say two, made it there. There was Deputy Legislative Speaker Hong Xiu Chu and former Health Minister Yang Chi-liang. And neither of these candidates are seen as having uh, much of a chance of winning this thing. And uh, I think uh, the polling backs up that view. A Taiwan think tank poll out this week looked at how these candidates would fare in an election against Tsai. And in both cases, uh, it had Tsai up by more than 40 points. Uh, You know, elections way off. Don't want to count anybody out at this point. But that's quite a margin to cover. But I want to start with uh, maybe the biggest surprise. That is that Legislative Speaker Wang Jinping and KMT Party Chairman Eric Ju both stayed out of the race. So do we, Nathan, have any idea about what their thinking was on this, how, how it shaped up this way? Well, uh, everybody will offer an opinion. And I think the most important thing I can say is that really nobody knows what's mm. going on. Speaker Wang tried to get a consensus around him. Apparently, he was uh, blocked by President Ma, who signaled that he would not accept a, a, a Wong candidacy. Uh, why didn't Eric Zhu want to run? Uh, n- nobody quite knows. The idea that he's promised he won't run, and therefore he won't run, uh, nobody, nobody really believed that until he decided not to run. And a lot of people would point to the fact that, you know, the KMT is facing an uphill battle, and so perhaps... Uh, Eric Jude doesn't, you know, want to run in a race that he's expected to lose in. But uh, I, I believe you've made the point that, you know, even if this is a race that's going to be tough, uh, having that candidacy is is still a good thing. It, it's still something that is to be desired. Yeah, the, there's always a, a possibility of winning. Look, I mean, weird things happen in Taiwan elections, and uh, the, you shouldn't imagine that something strange won't happen and change the race completely, and that the KMT nomination, the com- the KMT nominee, who is one of the two major candidates in the race, won't be able to win. There is a chance of that happening. But beyond that, the KMT nominee will be able to define the party 
uh, for the for the next for the foreseeable future, and perhaps after the, after the the race is over. So it's it's not something that you should just take lightly and 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 imagine that you you don't run because it seems like you won't win. So there is some speculation that perhaps uh, Ma, uh, President Ma pressured Wang not to run. Uh, have you seen any evidence of that? Well, it's all speculation at this point. It's all mm. media uh, saying that they heard something from somebody. But mm. uh, we, Ma, Ma has replied that he wouldn't do that kind of thing. So at this point, it's all kind of just a, a, a black box process. It's hard to – a little impenetrable. Yeah, well, and that's the nature of uh, of backroom politics, where people are seeking a consensus. Uh, bringing it more into the realm of frontroom politics, of course, now the KMT primary is shaping up. As I mentioned, there are two candidates that are uh, ostensibly in that primary. the The whole process, uh, you know, I cover this every day. It's still a little bit complicated and confusing to me. Could you just lay out for our listeners how this primary process, you know, in the broad strokes, is going to work? And, and, and what are the possibilities for the, the ways this could shake out at this point? Well, I think uh, we have to understand that the, the KMT is playing a two-track game right now. There's the informal game and the formal game. So informally, the, the major, the, the big candidates who didn't register are all working in the background to try to form a consensus around their candidacy. And if anybody can, succeeds in forming a consensus, then the formal rules will probably melt away magically. Mm. Um, so Speaker Wong tried and which would failed. Which would put these two candidates out of luck. Yes, yes. So Speaker Wong tried to form a consensus and apparently failed. I think uh, you'll see Vice President Wu in the next few days try to come forward and, and pr- present himself and see if he can form a consensus. Uh, and if that if that works, then the Central Committee will simply vote to nominate them and and stop the the formal process right now. Uh, if nobody finds a consensus around them then the formal track will continue to operate. So right now we have two formal entrants into the race, and they are uh, – so the, the party is now uh, scrutinizing their signatures to make sure they have the requisite number of signatures uh, that are qualified. Uh, if they both qualify, then they will have uh, opinion polls. Uh, there's been a lot made about the 30 percent threshold. Uh, according to the rules – the 30% threshold only applies if there's one candidate. So the idea being there is if there was only one candidate and they didn't uh, rise above a 30% approval rating, then the KMT, the central uh, the central party, could nominate its own candidate and kind of bypass any opinion poll. Yeah, if if nobody passes the 30% approval rating, then the, the committee in charge of this nomination, they, they don't recommend anybody to the central committee, and the central committee should come up with somebody else. And at, at, at this point, I mean, is the... The, the central structure of the KMT, are they kind of rooting against these two candidates? I mean, they they can't be too pleased to have two candidates not seen as likely winners uh, end up being the actual KMT candidate. The uh, KMT secretary general a couple of days ago, Li Sichuan, said that uh, if anybody wins the primary process, they will get the nomination, uh, which is what you would expect him to say. But he didn't have to say anything. Mm. He, he cl- came out with that statement uh, to to uh, say that this is a real process and they're mm-hmm. taking it seriously. I think it's a spare tire. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really want 
a consensus around one of the uh, one of the main three people. Mm-hmm. But if they can't get that, there is a chance that we will have either Hong Xiaozhu or Yang Zhiliang emerge as the, the nominee. All right. So certainly a lot to look at on the KNT side of things. But there were developments on the DPP side of things, or rather perhaps the independent side of things. I'm not uh, quite sure what to say. Former DPP chairman Shiming Da has now announced that he will be running for president in 2016. So, uh, Gavin, this shakes things up a bit? It does, especially if you're a presidential candidate and you come out and describe yourself as Robin Hood, which, of course, Sherman Durr did this week at a press conference. He came out and said he's running as an independent candidate because he believes the only path for Taiwan is to end one-party governance and the island desperately needs a Robin Hood president to deal with the current injustices and income equality. All right. All of which is quite interesting and quite verbal. Of course, whether Sherming Der will garner enough signatures to run, which he probably will garner enough signatures to send to the election commission to run as a candidate. But of course, the question is whether he'll get enough votes to actually make any difference at all to either the KMT or the DPP ballots. And perhaps we'll find uh, what many people are predicting is that he is a candidate whose star has perhaps already passed on. I think his star, you could say, disappeared some time ago. Mm. And this, uh, for today's purposes at least, uh, this leaves us with one other uh, potential, seen as a potential contender for the race, uh, James Sung. Sung is weighing a presidential race. He has said that they'll wait until after the KMT makes a nomination, and then they'll see where they, who they want to cooperate with. Uh, and the DPP is has some feelers out to the the PFP about possible cooperation. The KMT, of course, has also feelers about out with the KMT about cooperation, especially in some of the legislative races. Uh, but Song has he gave a TV interview a, a, a few days ago in which he sounded like a person who was getting ready for a, re- a run. Uh, is very critical of of President Ma and. Seems like uh, he might be ready to jump into the race and, and position the the PFP as an alternate to the the, the KMT vision within the the the, the blue camp. Mm. So even if the KMT camp uh, doesn't shape up its its presidential run, uh, this is shaping up to be kind of a, an interesting election. Yeah, and. I, I don't think that either Song or Sumingda will end up being major candidates. Although, if the KMT does end up with one of their what I call the spare tire candidate in Yang Zhuliang or Hong Xiaozhu, then Song might end up being the the the, the major uh, opposition to the DPP. All right, now leaving politics behind. Uh sort of, and on over to U.S.-Taiwan relations. And this week, we saw just a little bit of a shift on this front when the U.S. made moves toward inviting Taiwan to participate in a massive international maritime war exercise. Uh, now, to explain this story, I'm going to have to apologize in advance. A little bit of a wonky policy talk to get through, but it will all be clear soon enough. Uh, the U.S. House of Representatives last week passed a military budget with an amendment that stipulates that if the Department of Defense invites Beijing to participate in the Rim of the Pacific exercise, also known as RIMPAC, a similar invitation must also be extended to Taiwan. Now, anybody who watches these things will remember China's Navy took part in the exercise last summer, uh, but Taiwan was not invited. 
Okay, so to help us get a handle on all this, we're lucky enough to be joined once again over the phone by Ross Feingold, a senior advisor for DC International Advisory. Ross, thanks for being with us. Hi. Okay, so this is a massive military exercise. Uh, the U.S. says that it's aiming to boost uh, the capability of Pacific Rimmed Armed Forces to work together, uh, boost stability in the region. Uh, and as I mentioned, up until now, Taiwan has never been invited. Uh, so help us uh, get a little bit of a handle on how this happened. Is this a push from Congress trying to uh, maybe uh, be nicer to Taiwan? Yeah, a lot of these initiatives do come out of Congress. Uh, it's not necessarily the case that would have, that it would have been initiated by the Taiwan side, especially given President Ma and his government's policy of seeking uh, better relations with China. And that hasn't changed uh, despite recent events or despite only one year left in his term of office. But Taiwan does have some very enthusiastic supporters in, in the U.S. Congress who, over, over many decades, uh, and both during Chen Shui-bian's administration or more recently during Mang Zhou, will insert into legislation or pass non-binding resolutions in support of Taiwan's participation either in international organizations or in military exercises. So from that perspective, this is keeping consistent with past practice. Uh, the important thing we should keep in mind, even if this gets into a, a bill that becomes passed into law, that the president signs, the president on, on military and foreign affairs does have enormous latitude, frankly, to ignore what's in the bill when it comes to these kinds of issues. So uh, it remains to be seen if it will get into law or if it will be pulled out of, out of the bill at the very last minute, which also sometimes happens with these foreign policy items that the administration, uh, regardless of who's the president, doesn't like. Sometimes they ask a friendly member of Congress to remove it at the last minute. Uh, but the, the the public relations uh, value would have got, already been gotten and that uh, you know, some support for Taiwan would have been shown. Right, and of course, Taiwan and the U.S. are currently holding talks to establish a code for unplanned encounters at sea. Of course, Deputy Defense Minister um, Admiral Chen Yong-Kung did say in April that he believes that when the CUES protocol, as it's called, is finally established. The ROC Navy will finally be given the opportunity to participate in international naval exercises. Well, that, 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 that's an optimistic uh, statement, I think. Uh, that, that truly is a very political question, and it's, it's distinguished from other situations regarding Taiwan's relations with other countries, such as uh, trade agreements where it's, it's as much an issue about business and, and trade uh, policy types of issues. Uh, Taiwan being invited to participate in something like that truly is a political decision, and, and if China's involved, then it's going to be very difficult. Uh, and uh, before we move away from the subject, there's two very closely related pieces of news that came up this week that I'm going to run through briefly. Uh, I want to hear your take on, Ross. Uh, first, uh, there was a piece of legislation that would promote Taiwan's participation as an observer in the International Criminal Police Organization, better known as Interpol, uh, making headway in the U.S. Uh, on a related front, uh, this is more back to the military end of things, we also learned this week that Taiwan uh, has been invited to attend another U.S.-led military gathering. In this case, it's the U.S. Marine Corps, bringing together foreign commanders from amphibious forces deployed uh, mostly in the Asia-Pacific for a conference in Hawaii this week. In this case, interestingly, China has been excluded. 
Uh, so what are we to make of all this? Are we are we seeing uh, U.S. policy drawing Taiwan a little bit closer, uh, a little bit more wary of China? Or is maybe this just Congress that is moving in this direction? How do, how are we to interpret all this? Uh, some of these things are, are just part of historical support for Taiwan. They kind of run on their own, somewhat separate tracks. So with regard to the Marine exercises, uh, there is actually U.S. law that prohibits China from participating, uh, from observing this kind of amphibious landing. Uh, so they, they simply cannot be there. Uh, with, with regard to Interpol, it, it's, I think it's one of those to-do items for Taiwan's friends, whether it's in Congress or Europe or Canada. Uh, it, it's, it's an international organization where Taiwan's participation would be helpful, um, just like the World Health Assembly or the World Health Organization and, and the uh, ICAO for, for civil aviation, etc. So the we're getting around to it. Uh, I think that maybe the health organization was a higher priority for Taiwan, especially given issues like SARS or, or avian flu and, and, and those kinds of health scares and Ebola most recently. Uh, but it would be helpful for Taiwan to get in. It, it, it's a name issue. Uh, it's an entity issue. There's been proposals in the past that Taiwan could participate using the name of one of its police agencies, which might be a, a compromise. Uh, but uh, with every international organization, it seems that China wants to fight the battle anew. There, there isn't a, a master policy where we could agree Taiwan will participate under one name in every organization. So uh, China has the, the power, really, to, to exercise its influence in, in these organizations. So even though they get along well with President Obama's government, they, they still want to fight this battle every time. Uh, but from the U.S. perspective, I think those congressmen, again, they're just trying to be helpful to Taiwan and, and achieve meaningful participation in international organizations. Uh, although with regards specifically to criminal issues, it would be great if the U.S. and Taiwan could explore even greater levels of judicial cooperation or even a bilateral extradition agreement. And I believe that's, uh, that House committee meeting earlier this week, one of the representatives came out with basically the line, to hell with China. <laughs> Well, I, there are very few congressmen who, who are going to speak in a, in a glowing way about China uh, with regard to uh, sovereignty disputes, business disputes, human rights issues, etc. I mean, China does not have a lot of friends in Congress. That being said, China certainly has a lot of friends in the U.S. business community, which would be the same in Australia or, or Europe or Canada. So. Uh, a good example of this would be things like getting currency manipulation provisions into the bills that are under consideration with regard to trade, from trade promotion authority and the TPP, et cetera. The business people will sit down with their congressmen after the congressmen have vented their anger at China and said all sorts of things for public consumption and explain from a business perspective why those kinds of things might be bad for U.S. consumers. All right. Well, uh, a lot to dwell on there, but we're going to have to leave it for now. Uh, Ross, thank you so much for joining in today. Thanks, guys. All right. So that was a quick look at international affairs. We're going to be coming on back to Taiwan domestic politics. Uh, and last up today, well, of course, uh, a quickly growing segment of Taiwan's population are new arrivals recently departed from South and Southeast Asia. And like any immigration story in any country, a fair amount of news will come out of that process, whether it be about labor issues or on issues of discrimination or, you know, on the positive front, definitely plenty of examples of immigrants contributing uh, uh, many different ways to Taiwanese society. Uh, so you can expect to see a story or two on this topic every week. This week saw a flood of stories, uh, more than we could possibly get to today. But uh, we're going to 
do a little bit of a lightning round, get to as many of them as we can. Uh, First up, human rights and immigrant advocacy groups are charging that the Ministry of Education's high school curriculum guidelines is using discriminatory language to refer to foreign spouses and other immigrants. Uh, Gavin, can you explain this story a little bit? Yeah, the Ministry of Education last year passed a new curriculum which contained the use, like you said, discriminatory language towards these new immigrants. And sadly, the publications used the terms foreign brides, Indonesian maids and Filipino maids. And these phrases were in fact banned by the government in 2003. So since 2003, government publications haven't been allowed to use these words to describe people from Southeast Asia that work in Taiwan. But they still managed to find their way in. Well, somebody, which I, we, who knows who, maybe a lowly person in the Ministry of Education, decided to eke these words into the books. Needless to say, the Secretary General of the Ministry of the Education, Wang Chun Chuan, actually came out and said, yes, this was rather inappropriate and we will now remove these phrases from all our publications. Okay, so the, it seems like the government is trying to get right on this now that these concerns have been raised. Yeah, there, is, there was concern, of course, that the using what the government called disparaging terms, such as foreign bride and domestic help, could lead to, like, you know, young people that read these books would then pick up on these phrases and describe people from right. Southeast Asia as either being simply a foreign bride or a maid. Right, and a lot of these groups were pointing out, you know, uh, some of the sensitivity here is the fact that, you know, you, you move here, you marry somebody, and then you've lived here for 30 years and you're still described as a foreign bride, even though that marriage happened 30 years ago. You know, it's it's odd to think of somebody as a bride 30 years later. Uh, what, what did you take away from these stories, Nathan? Well, this is a story about uh, a society trying to become a more diverse and pluralistic and open and tolerant society and struggling with that process. Uh, because dominant groups in every society overlook some of the little insults and the, the, the barbs thrown at uh, underrepresented or underprivileged groups in society. Uh, and this, is, this story touches on issues of gender equality. Uh, why, are they, why are the women referred to as brides? Mm. Uh, I'm a foreign bride, except I'm a male. <laughs> but nobody calls me a, a, a foreign groom ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it touches on questions of, of social inequality uh, and, and race as well. Uh, so, for example, in the, the London Guardian a few months ago, there was a story saying, why are expatriates all white? Right. White people are called expatriates. Yeah. Brown people are called migrants or yeah. migrant workers. Right. Uh, and we have different language to talk about different sorts of people. Mm. Um, so, for example, you know, we were here in this in this discussion where we're calling them people from Southeast Asia. Well, many of them are citizens with Southeast Asian mm-hmm. heritage or background or origins. Uh, it's it's hard to know what the proper term of, of what that that they would consider as, as a term of dignity and respect is. We're still working that out. We're still negotiating those things in society today. Mm. Right. So that's more on the society end of things, trying to work out those issues. Of course, another issue is uh, labor and how do you get the right labor policy for uh, migrant workers in Taiwan? Uh, This week, the Ministry of Labor says it is considering increasing the cash reward it gives for reporting the illegal hiring of migrant workers. Uh, Gavin, can you tell us a little bit about what's behind that? 
Yes, the Ministry of Labour, Keith, said this week that it is considering increasing both the cash rewards for people who dob in illegal, illegally hired migrant workers and also in thinking of increasing the fines for individuals and companies who hire illegal migrant workers who have either overstayed their visa or don't have a visa. So uh, obviously this is an issue that you know had probably has been causing problems for a while. Why are we hearing this about this now? Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the issue of illegal immigrants is, of course, is an issue in most countries. But of course, in Taiwan, it's become an issue because sadly, there was a recent incident in which an Indonesian worker who had been hired illegally mm. by a breakfast shop owner, I believe, stabbed the breakfast shop owner in an argument over pay. Mm. There was a dispute over wages and the Indonesian national stabbed the Taiwan breakfast shop owner in this dispute over wages. But of course the Indonesian was had been employed illegally anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm not condoning the fact that she murdered her boss there. Right. Far from it. But I'm just saying the arrest of the Indonesian national did bring to the forefront reports of people hiring people mm-hmm. from Southeast Asia, to coin the term, illegally. So a way of highlighting the issue, although perhaps not the best example of no, uh, the issue. No, certainly not the best example of the hiring of illegal immigrants, no. Uh, all right, uh, two, two, two more we're going to just touch on quickly uh, on the more positive end of things. Uh, we heard this week that a television series produced by the new Taipei City government that gives Taiwan's new immigrants the chance to tell their own stories and obtain valuable information is going to be launched this Sunday at 9 p.m. So it's kind of uh, TV programming catering towards new immigrants in Taiwan. It's going to be uh, broadcast in a lot of different languages, uh, Vietnamese, Thai, a lot of, lot of different languages. Uh, another development that happened this week, uh, the Ministry of the Interior said that it will launch a program this year to help the children of Southeast Asian immigrants in Taiwan learn the native language and culture of their parents. Uh, so what we're actually going to see is uh, scholarships and money put forward for a lot of uh, young people to to visit the home countries of their parents uh, and uh, get a little bit more versed in that culture and those languages. So interestingly, both of these are government programs um, and they're both seem to be aimed at uh, helping to integrate this segment of the population in Taiwan and, and, and honor their cultural heritage uh, a, a little bit more. Uh, Nathan, uh, do, do you see this as perhaps any kind of uh, signaling any kind of a shift in, in the government's policy or, or is this sort of some part of something longer? Uh, I, I don't know. With regard to for the, the TV programs, for example, that could be a very positive development or it could be a, a less positive development. It depends on how the stories are told. Taiwan is a Han-dominated society. And if those stories are told from the Han point of view, um, telling the standard stories about foreigners coming to Taiwan and how they've discover that Taiwan is a wonderful place with wonderful people and great food and loving families, then then it's not really helping the immigrant community. For that to be a, a, a positive development, they have to be tough and say that, the, yes, Taiwan is a nice place, but there are problems uh, and there are difficulties adapting to a, a new society and to face some of those issues head on and, and to be willing to criticize the rest of society and and, and speak out some of their triumphs and their, their challenges. Mm. So definitely a tricky issue to get right. Yes, it's very difficult. Mm. 
All right, and that program that we just mentioned is going to be on this Sunday at 9 p.m. Uh, I'm certainly going to be watching, see uh, exactly what it is they come up with. Our program, on the other hand, uh, is wrapping up right now. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, you can send us your thoughts on this week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you're listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. It lets us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Gavin, thank you. Yes, goodbye. And Nathan Botto. Nathan, uh, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, www.icrt.com.tw. Now, keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT-FM 100.